Ladies and gentlemen, episode 76 of Three Brothers Talking. This is uh, David. And this is Jay Rizzle Remy. <laughs> is that a name you're trying out for the new year of podcasting? I figure I might as well. It's a cool, hip name. I was like, why not? I do sign some of my notes to Faith J. Remy. Just there you J. Go. Hyphen Remy. It's pretty, pretty dope, yo. Yeah, yeah, I'm very, uh, that's the pet name she has for you, you, you know? know, and I'm yeah, I mean, this is uh, a lot, so <laughs> behind the curtain, that's what's going to, uh, this new, we're rebranding the podcast in 2022 and we're workshopping, uh, you know, workshopping the names, working shop, workshopping the personalities, it, it re- all that. It reminds me of in Psych when they have a player named Gus. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> That's what you're going to go with next year. Yeah. Or this year. This year, 2022. Uh, who knows when people are going to hear this, honestly. We're recording this uh, between Christmas and New Year's, and uh, life's kind of busy. And not so, really. My life well, isn't that busy right now. Your life is not that busy. My life, we still have a... Uh, we are like between family Christmas parties. Yeah, I guess we are um, too. But ours are kind of So we... Yeah, we got we've got a... A little bit longer lag or lapse between those but uh so we just got stuff going on so hopefully i get this you know maybe i'll get this out still in 2021 maybe it'll be the first one of 2022 Man, we don't know yet who knows this is our uh take two at recording this episode which is fun yeah what happened the first time uh, i guess i think we we're just tired and done <laughs> and we just couldn't make it happen yeah we were um we were recording well we recorded chapter 13 and Maybe that was a little longer than we thought it was going to be, and maybe it took a little bit more of our brain power than we thought. And so we went to just roll into uh, this chapter, chapter 14 of Heaven Was Placed, because this is a book club episode. In case it we hasn't need a been cool guessed jingle yet. for the book club. Do we have, wait, do we have a book club jingle? Because I don't listen to it, so. No, we don't. Okay. We, I use, uh, I use dun, intro dun, music sometimes dun, 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 that is slightly different. That's a break. That's like news. That's news music. That's yeah. I, I love when Ted Cluck does the breaking news music. By the way, dun, dun, on the dun, uh, dun. on the gut check or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, just in general. Yeah. So yeah, we don't have anything like that. We have intro music that's slightly different um, than the regular one. But that's uh, true. Pro- probably if unless I said that, no one would ever know. And honestly, I don't keep it straight all the time. So who's to say? Who's to say? Yeah, we did start to record this once and we kind of like got a few minutes into it and it was just, for whatever reason, it was kind of a train wreck. That was <laughs> so, a nice way of putting it. It, it was just not We just, good. yeah, so we just said, well, we're going to table this and we'll come back to prepared. this. Yeah, we'll see if that paid off. Yeah, we'll see. I guess they'll have to be the judge of that. Rate us, My money's us. on. <laughs> My money is on No. But uh, we'll see. Strong possibility. Yeah, please, uh, please do rate or review though. Um, We do appreciate that. It's a good way to start off the year or to end your year again. However, you're listening to this, Uh, leave us a review. Um, Ratings are good, but leaving us a review and a rating, like a written review, is uh, even better. Because then we also have a record of people actually doing it. Like we have more, we have more ratings than reviews. And it's more fun to actually, you know, have uh, have the person's name or their fake 
name that they have, at least on iTunes or whatever. So anyway, let's get let's get into uh chapter 14. We're really on the home stretch of Heaven Misplaced by Doug Wilson. There's chapter 14, and then there's a really short chapter 15 and a really short epilogue. So this is kind of the I don't know. This this is definitely we were talking about it before we hopped on. This is definitely the one of the more complicated chapters it felt like i feel like it was a built like the entire book was building up kind of to the last three chapters and just kind of jumped in with both feet yeah and it's like all right we built enough groundwork and we're going which i i don't not very wrong to do it it's not a long book to begin with yeah but yeah it definitely is more complicated i re- i think i had to reread it twice making sure like hey wait a minute what because even i was talking to my wife earlier and i'm like you and i had spoken briefly about it um and like some of the stuff that we're going to talk about, I was like, oh, I kind of never thought of it that way, but I can definitely see and I definitely do agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, there's some... I don't know, when I read through it the first time, I actually thought it was pretty simple. Yeah. And then after we tried to record on it, I was like, no, this actually seems like the ideas in here are maybe a little more... Um, complicated. Complicated than I thought. So we're going to go in here and this chapter is entitled... The New Humanity West to Eden. Starts off by talking about how Genesis is the book of uh, beginning. This is too often neglected by Christians. Here we see the beginning of the world, obviously, but also the beginning of marriage, of work, rest, music, and many other, many other of God's good gifts. In short, the book of Genesis provides us with a basic understanding of our relationship to the world around us. So what are we supposed to do while we are here? That leads us to the question of the cultural mandate. Um, so, Jeremy, what is what is the cultural mandate in Scripture? Where does it come from? So, the cultural mandate this idea. Um, is uh, basically what Adam is told and Noah is told. So, pre-fall and then post-flood, um, the first thing that God tells Adam and Noah to do. Um, so, in Genesis one twenty-eight. It God tells Adam, then go out. God blessed them, meaning Adam and Eve. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then right after the, the flood, when Noah leaves the boat, God says, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the air, and all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. And that's Genesis 9. So um, it's basically a responsibility and a blessing that man is obligated to um, dom- dominate, seems harsh, but at least to control and subdue and be responsible for um, what God has entrusted to us, which is his creation. Um, David, anything else you want to say about that? No, it's it's like you said, God made creation and then he put man kind of in a way, he put him in charge of that creation. He said, you're, I mean, he says to have dominion over it, right. um, over all the other creation. And Doug goes in to talk about kind of the three responses that we can have well, to the cultural mandate. I think one thing that I wanted to note is that 
the presence of sin doesn't put us in this place. I think that's one thing that he kind of talks about. You're yeah. jumping in forward, but there's one quote at the end that he definitely states that, which is something we easily forget, which then goes into the different responses, I think, because we often forget that that is a pre-sin blessing and um, design, that we are, as men, caretakers um, and subduers mm. and um, cultivators of the earth we've been given and blessed with. Yeah, God did not remove the cultural mandate. Um, he didn't remove it because sin entered the world, and he also didn't institute it because sin entered the world. Right. right? If anything, he reinforced it. it. Yeah. <laughs> if anything, he said, still do this, or maybe do it even more. And then he said, yeah. you can you eat know. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that too. That was good news. Um, yeah, so I, I like how Doug describes the cultural mandate. His... I would say this is kind of a simple definition of it um, before we get into the responses is that he says the cultural mandate is nothing more or less than mankind's obligation to be culturally responsible. That responsibility is supposed to be defined by what God says in scripture and not by the latest jag that secularist unbelievers might be on. Words like responsibility are not neutral and we must always be grounded in scripture. And so this cultural responsibility must always have the gospel at the center of it and the various details of cultural application as the overflow. Pretty good definition. Yeah, it's pretty succinct. So he talks about these three main responses that we might have to the cultural uh, mandate. You know, Doug talks about how in the radical environmental circles, the idea is that man is the cancer of the planet, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's easy for Christians to just, I I think that this, to back up the, one of the reasons that this chapter was jumping in with both feet is I think that this chapter began to talk about questions of, uh, worldview more than other chapters. Yeah. Like he isn't like, we're going to talk about narratives that the church or people believe in a little bit. Um, and not like news narratives, but we're talking about the narratives of mankind's purpose and history and path forward and like all these things. Those weren't really on the table in the rest of this book. The rest of this book was a little more about historical optimism. And it was about like, there's a narrative in that. Like, do do you believe that the world is just burning and going downhill or do you believe that it's going uphill? Um, That's sort of a narrative, but this is talking about worldview on a level of like, who do you let define the word responsibility? Do you mm-hmm. let the world define it or do you let God define it? And be careful because you might think you let God define it, but you might not. Um, that's why this this chapter and the ones after it, I feel like jump, they take everything we've talked about so far and push it a little bit into this worldview category. So he talks about the three responses that we can have to the cultural um, mandate. Mm-hmm. He also he also points out the irony of how the world around us, secularist humanity, says like mankind is the cancer of the planet, but also this planet was random chance, and also mankind on this planet is random chance, yet mankind still has a responsibility to take care of all this random chance, which is ironic and nonsensical, right? It's a circular <laughs> argument. It is. Um, it's not even a complete circle, though. That's the problem. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an argument that fails at even being circular. It just doesn't make any sense. So, um, 
this is uh here I think it's at least on the Kindle, it's location four ninety four, which just stinks. Like I hate how Kindle um does like the location thing. Yeah. It's but anyway, uh fourteen ninety four location here, and he says there's three possible responses to the cultural mandate. The first one he said is one is like the man who buried his talent in the ground because he feared a harsh master. For this guy, cultural responsibility to exercise dominion in the world is just too difficult and hard, so an escapist religion is born. Now, the second one, he says, the second man likes the idea of dominion, and so he begins to eat and drink and beat the fellow servants, resulting in a despotic religion. That's kind of like the extreme domination mm-hmm that we talked about earlier. And then the third one humbles himself and enters into a godly dominion through and in Christ. What do you think about those, uh, like reflecting on all those things, Jeremy? Well, if I think back to typical patterns of sin, I mean, you basically, especially we as go to men and what we see in the Bible and us, we typically go to our ends of being too passive or too overly dominating. Um, whereas the one is right in the sweet spot where it's recognizing the blessings we've been given and their responsibility within those blessings not to overtake and destroy, which is um, easy to do with sin, uh, and then or just be passive and not do anything, um, which is the first yeah. response. So, I mean, everything we see in life as far as being a husband or a dad you're basically kind of working in the middle of all those, trying to be in the middle of all those things. The sweet spot is humbling yourself, um, using the tools you've been given and the skills you've given, letting things grow while also encouraging them to grow and working on each of them. Yeah. And I love how he points out entering into this through the gospel and through Christ, because it, this goes back to the worldview thing. Like, do you, do you believe that you, that your Bible has questions, has questions that and answers about something like, environmentalism right um a lot of christians would think that in a way we just have to depend on modern science and stuff like that right but you know doug points out how like he's talking about how responsibility is defined by god and by christ and by his word and so he points out like isaiah 5 8 says woe to those who join house to house they add field to field so there's no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land proverbs twelve ten. there's a lot of proverbs like this by the way a righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. And so he just points out really simply how, you know, Isaiah is saying like, we shouldn't be out to quote, pay the planet. Um, and how Solomon points out that like God has not given animals the same dignity as man, but they still have a value and that God created them. And so you should treat them with respect as God's creation. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, all those things mean that you're letting God define responsibility. Right not the world. Um, and his, this might not be in our show prep here, but his breakdown of Hebrews two, um, five through 10, um, is really interesting to me about how I, there's so much of Hebrews that when you read really good works on the book of Hebrews, your mind is kind of blown because not only does it open up so much about the priesthood and everything, but I remember I just recently read, and you've read this too, Jeremy. You've read, um, oh, it's by it's by uh, Sam Renahan. What's it? What's it called? Um, the Covenant Book. The 
Yes. Oh, I was literally just talking. Oh, about I got it. Um, the mystery of Christ, the his covenant in his kingdom. Yeah, that's no. what it's called. That's a good one. That one opened up so much of the book of Hebrews to me. Um, and Doug brings up this um, Psalm 8 um, and also how this applies to Hebrews 2. So in Hebrews 2, it talks about how, I'll just quote Hebrews 2, 5 through 10, and we can dig into this real fast if you know where I'm at in the chapter. For he has put, he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him, but now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. First thing I want to point out of that is this is how it becomes kind of, for, for lack of a better word, gospel-centered, I would say. Because it's pointing out how Christ, and I, don't, I think that this might be the next chapter more, but like Christ does restore the ability of man to take dominion in the right way. Mm-hmm. Because precisely because he's the full revelation of God and because he saves us from our sinful nature, that would drive us into despair. Mm-hmm. So he frees us from that, and then we can actually enter into cultural responsibility graciously empowered by Christ. Yeah. Well, that's like anything in life. And that's something I think we have to learn to live in and walking by the spirit, um, the enabling by grace to do the work we've been called and um, given the opportunity to do every day. Yeah. Without that grace, it can easily become um, and without the Holy spirit and without Christ on within you, um, as new creatures and seeing this as a blessing, you can easily go into the, I own this and I can destroy it with my own hands. Cause it's mine or also let it do its thing. Um, passivity of it. <clears throat> exactly. Grace yeah. enables us from that overflow to do all the work we've been called to do. Yeah. And this goes into how, um, we can dig into the stories we believe about history and God and freedom. Um, this is, I think a really great, section and honestly this is maybe a section of the book that would hit most more people in the teeth so to speak because i think that he confronts more of our some of i should say some of our generic american christianity a little bit more as he begins to talk about how we view the world kind of like the world does and Mm -hmm. we view history like the world does Mm -hmm. um and we don't and we don't believe we have been convinced by the world that our Christianity is actually not so good for the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, That's the worldview stuff we're talking about. We've relegated down to we're not the experts on it, even though we have the person who created it, the author telling us how to live it. Um, exactly. We live by, <laughs> we, we, 
And especially nowadays, like people don't like to investigate or do things or being everyone wants to be told something in a tweet 140 character snippet. Um, yeah. And that's not how life actually works. And that's basically how we've been relegated down. We've let ourselves be given the rules by those who don't believe the same rules we do. Um, yeah. And that's where, um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to read this section that, that he starts us off with where he says the church continues to be hampered in the work of reformation by certain quote, unquestionable truths, unquote, mm-hmm. that are still circulated among us. One of these truths is that the law of God amounts to slavery instead of freedom. He says, but in the gospel, all things liberate us, including the law of God. Consider the preamble to the 10 commandments and notice how God is telling his people that his law is actually the law that liberates. This only makes sense in the context of the gospel, of course, but we must insist that it, insist that it does make sense in the context of the gospel. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So he's brought them out of the house out of bondage. Of out of slavery. And he's giving them laws that will keep them out of slavery. Yes, it's a different kind of slavery he's talking about, but it's slavery nonetheless. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation tell us a story of salvation. And they further tell us that salvation is a story. The salvation of God's people has never been a matter of disembodied truths for disembodied souls. And so it is that the Ten Commandments are not abstracted law, but rather introduced by God, placing them in the right part of the story. The Ten Commandments began with once upon a time. God redeemed his people from Egypt and in gratitude for this, and in light of the historical reality, they were solemnly covenanted to live in a certain grateful way. Grace is followed by gratitude, and gratitude knows no other response than obedience from the heart. And then he says, but false gods tell a story too. What does he say going into that false god section, Jeremy? I mean, what do you what do you think about what, do you, what is he saying there? Well, it's something everyone is going to, Every story has the author is going to tell you what they believe. And since you're starting with a false narrative from a false deity, it's going to tell you a false way to live. Um, the secular age mm-hmm. is still believing the God of this age. If there's, as listen to actually him and a few other people discussing, if there's no God above the state, um, then God is the state. Uh, similarly, if there's no yeah. God above science, then God is science. Um, yeah. That's just how it works. Um, so in the secular age, we're being told how to take care of things in ourselves, which I think is an important point I don't skim over is the fact that we often think that these are disembodied truths for disembodied souls, and our souls and our bodies will live on in some way, shape, or form. There'll be new bodies, but in some mm-hmm. way, we are this is everything we do in life and everything we build will have an impact on eternity. And um I guess just going back to that fact and we often neglect that as Christians and we're often just take what we're told by other false uh, deities or false truths. Yeah. Um, Yeah. One of the ones that he points out is like this sort of narrative that um, whenever the secular and when I say secular, what he means is like strictly speaking a state or public square that is completely devoid of religious thought or belief Mm -hmm. that there's this, there's this idea that all throughout history, um, you know, like there was, 
there was just fighting after fighting and it was all because of religion. Um, you know, as he says, the story usually goes that after the Reformation, Europe, Europe was torn apart with religious strife. The infamous wars of religion racked Europe until finally, with a great sigh of relief, our fathers stumbled into the virtues of tolerance and the secular racked Europe. And um, Sorry, <laughs> Kindle messed me up. Um, and the secular state took over the public square. Our deliverance was the bloodthirsty religious convictions that the bloodthirsty religious convictions were finally banished into a realm of, quote, personal belief, a realm that had no effect on public behavior. So he points out how, like, that's a story about the history of the world and how the world works. Mm -hmm. That if we're honest, part of all of us, like, believes that. Um, And the way that it works is that it's it's not entirely true like it's not entirely false, right? That there was a lot of unnecessary wars fought in the name of the Christian religion over the years. That's a, that's, that's a thing that happened. However, the lie is that banishing, banishing Christianity to be something that did not, uh, that like basically just kind of pushing it to the fringes and saying, you can keep your religion, but like, don't let it, don't let it be public. Don't let it invade the public sphere because if we let it invade the public sphere, we're going to have wars again. Um, that's kind of the lie mm-hmm. because, well, we have wars on our own, right? With <laughs> Without that. Right. And what that happens also is it creates a void. Like you said, it creates a void where if there's nothing, if there is no God, then the state is God or science is God or, you know, whatever, like, it, it ends up normally being the state because that's the entity with the most power. Right. So, yeah. And so he points out how this sort of buying into this history, um, and it's, it, and like if buying into this history, I, I would say this chapter is worth reading through this book for, uh, if only to examine in yourself how much, like where, how you actually view history and how you actually view the role that your faith ought to play in the realm around you. Um, He points out how this story is compelling, widespread, constantly reiterated, and almost entirely false. Unfortunately, even many Christians have been taken in by aspects of it. And this is how most Christians in the West have made peace with their quote, escapist option of the cultural mandate mentioned earlier. Religion is to have no effect on our views of what should and should not be allowed in the public square, but may be allowed to inform us what will get salvation in the next life. Which is, um, unfortunately, true. (laughs) Um, Yeah, he goes on to point how the church has been, you know, relegated to a position of lesser importance. Jeremy, you talked about this earlier. Even in the U.S., where professing Christians constitute a huge segment of the population. So really, here in the U.S., we still have so many people that are professing Christians, but still so many of them, if you were to talk to them about anything, they would very quickly say, well, I shouldn't impose my religion anywhere, Mm -hmm. right? Right. Like, my religion should not be imposed in any sort of government way. It, it, it It shouldn't be... Like, I'm allowed to live out my convictions through my vote, but if I voted on a on a candidate who was actually all that Christian, 
he wouldn't, he shouldn't, it would be unchristlike to go and <laughs> um, really be distinctly Christian, I feel like. Um, we just have a view of Christianity and our Christianity that is very okay with being in, like Doug says, a ghetto a little bit. Um, like we're just okay with that. And the, in the reaction, I don't know, what, what do you think, first of all, what do you think of that? And what do you think people push back on? Like everything I just said, how do you think people would push back on that? What everything I just said? Well, they go back to the separation of church and state and the fact yeah. that people even subconsciously, even Christians would say that religion is why most wars happen, which I would yeah. disagree with. I would say sin is the reason why most wars happen. Got them. Um, I mean, Nazism isn't necessarily religion. Um, oh, well, but, it's 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 easy to say like, yeah, there was a lot of wars fought over religion. Right. But uh, there's also, I don't know, like the Soviet Union who managed to kill a lot of people without a quote-unquote religion. Well, they were technically atheists, right? but yeah. Like there's, there's yeah, you might, you might be able to look through history and point out plenty of crooked regimes who have claimed a God and some of them who've claimed a Christian God, but you can claim the much deadlier ones that right. are explicitly without God. Well, and even them saying like the, having the no specified state church, which is what they all wanted in the beginning, and even where they get all this separate church and state from in that letter, um, saying that it's good to not have a quote a church for, for the nation or states, which is interesting considering some states actually had churches of each state when the constitution was ratified. Um, yeah, majority a majority of the states had a uh, state church. Right. So um because they were pointing out that Congress wasn't allowed to, by the way. They were right. pointing That's out all that they individual states. The federal could, yeah. government could not, not the state governments. State governments have their own constitutions where they could say that, but not the other way around. But that's another discussion for states' rights yeah. and federal government <clears throat> rules. Um, well, go ahead. That's that that thing about what you point out. They would people would say separation of church and state. Um. I understand why that's the reaction, mm -hmm. but it on once on one level, let me say that it just doesn't seem to work. No, like yeah, something's yes, going to fill the void. <laughs> something has to be, like you said, something has to be God, and there's no way to just stay neutral, where um, nobody's view of morality will get pushed on anyone else. Right. There's, it always there's has no, to. My someone's has morality to. If, has if, to take stance. If not, then you're not a person of character or um, belief. Well, and if you're a Christian who doesn't believe that, then how about you go and tell me, you go to a local Planned Parenthood and you look at how many of your tax dollars are going to that and you tell me that uh, a different view of morality isn't being pushed on you and taken out of your wallet. Right. Like, you know, we all know that morality, like, on some level, has to be um, pushed like your view it's just going to be from big things to small things now that doesn't mean like the one the one way that people react is shouldn't we have a church a separation of church and state which is yes like the state is not allowed to direct the church that's what right. that means um, and so you're sovereign. it also means it, it, yeah and it, but it, it also means that like 
the church, the, the state is not allowed to be in the business of faith. That's mm-hmm. what that means. But it doesn't mean that like, oh, the state should never have a, I think people are, people are okay with morality being pushed from the state as long as it's generic enough. Right. Yeah. Like as long as it's just don't murder, but then we get into, well, what about abortion? And it's like, well, then we're going to disagree and fight it out. Like, <laughs> right. Um, but not war. don't, yeah. When it's, it's like, uh, should we tax? It's like, well, I don't know. Let's fight it out. Or like, war. yeah, there's, so there's always that question. You can't just avoid, you can't avoid having beliefs and ultimately religious beliefs invade the public discussion. You just can't. Um, there's no way to be just perfectly neutral mm-hmm. on all of these things. And I don't know, we're we're maybe we're we need to dig in into like the rest of like how he talks about different the views, the two major categories of Christians um, in response to this. But what I would say, the other, the other, the other way that people would push back on what I just said is not the separation of church and state thing, but it's like the assuming the extreme of what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So what I'm not saying, and also for the record, what Doug is not saying in his book, he it is not saying that if somebody doesn't go to church on Sunday, they get put in prison. And it's not saying, it's not saying that if somebody um, is, uh, you know, uh, violates a Levitical law, they get stoned to death. That is not what it's saying. Like he talked about, we 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 are talking about entering into this cultural responsibility, so to speak, through the gospel, through the lens of the gospel, through Christ, and allowing the full revelation of God not just the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, to inform us about what God says is right and wrong. Whether that's, like Isaiah says, to not put field against field, or Proverbs says not to treat a beast with contempt, right? Mm-hmm. Like, So we're using all of the Bible, and we're using the primacy of the New Testament to help interpret the more limited revelation of the Old Testament. So don't fall in, please, like, this is a huge topic, but please don't hear either Jeremy or I or, or anybody like us saying that we are for or pushing for any of those, prob- probably I should say, any of the extremes that jump into your mind. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not going to lead the Crusades. We're not going <laughs> well, to... I think you know, it's gonna, understanding yeah. how each one has been designed to fit in their own uh, sphere of control, whereas the yes. church... Um, regulates the church, their family, the family, and then the government, the sword, and government for justice, and how those all work together is um, when one oversteps the other, bounds the other two, yeah, fill in the gaps and stop the other, the other, which is something we've seen lacking over the past. <laughs> well, for a long, long time, yeah. Um, and and I'll, let me say this, and I say this really humbly: if you're somebody who did think of that extreme that I talk about, I I do say this humbly, like. Maybe the reason that you jumped to the extreme is because you're a little more influenced by the story that Doug referenced earlier. Like, maybe you're a little more influenced by the secular history of the world than you might think. And because part of that history is to think in that extreme, you know, that the religion was the reason for the oppression and the war and this and the that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying you're horrible. 
Not saying you're a bad Christian by any means. Well, I think we all need to sit back uh, and I'm say, just, why I'm, do we believe what we yeah. believe? That's what this whole thing is talking about. It's like, why do we believe what we believe about eschatology is basically how this whole book works. But then how yeah. does our viewpoint on the Christian of the Christian worldview and the Bible and what God tells us to do with the cultural mandate, how those all influence what we do on a day to day from our voting to the way we spend money to the way we talk to our neighbors and cut our lawns. Exactly. And like the, the thing that I would say is I say this as somebody who doesn't have all those particulars worked out, because if you asked me, there's plenty of questions that you would ask me and you'd ask like, well, you're somebody who says you want the Bible to speak on this. So what does it say about, I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a, what seems like a trivial civil political question. I don't know. Like there's plenty of things that I'll say, I do not know. Like, but my, my point, my passion, my heart, and I think well, the, more, more correctly, the, the thing that Doug is pushing for in this is let's agree to try to find that idea, that answer in scripture first. Um, and if we can agree to try to go to the Bible first, then we might still come up with different answers, but let's try to have it, you know, let's try to have it come from the Bible as our primary source and not not anywhere else not anywhere else in the in the world that's like because like i said i don't have all the answers jeremy doesn't have all the answers um we're not some perfect seers (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know um but i guess we would say like our goal is when we're faced with a question like that our goal and our our first principles are to go to the bible first and let that have the first and last word on the subject which is yeah. So anyway, let's let's jump into these two major categories of Christian. Doug says that this sort of like divide of believing that the church, um, believing these stories about history, um, leaves two kind of major divides of major categories of Christians, people who believe those stories. He says the first are the contented inhabitants of the evangelical ghetto. They want to escape from public responsibilities and they conceive the faith as something that will enable us to escape from an evil world. In this scenario, he says the secular state is wrong, but it's unconquerable. Satan is the God of this world. And what we need to do is pray for the rapture to whisk us out of here. As though, as mentioned earlier, God's work in this world was like America's disastrous involvement in Vietnam in the end of the world is simply a cosmic version of the evacuation of Saigon. That's a great sentence, by the way. Like that's uh, a, <laughs> yeah, that's a, he has uh, some of his writing every now and then. You're just like, that's a great, that's a great analogy or great sentence or it's just, it's yeah. So that's the first view um, or the first group of um, Christians, he says. So Jeremy, you remember what the second group is? Yeah, the second group wants a place at the table. They do not like being marginalized with their voice completely unheard. They want to be invited to the discussions. They accept the idea of the secular state and the democratic ethos that goes with it, but simply want their voices to be registered along with all the others. The secular state is right, but is currently not living up to its promising potential because the Christians are inexplicably excluded. As the Babel special interest groups ascends up to the secular throne, these Christians want to make sure the representation, representative evangelical voice is numbered among them. Yeah. What do you think about that? 
I mean, I think I've sat there and thought I want to be a place at the table, but also I've thought that we should be the ones setting the table and being the main people talking since we have the belief yeah. to back up what we do. And that's what he's setting up here. Um, yeah. That's basically, the, and I would say the majority of Christians, and even me to an extent, I think up until a few years ago, and I thought more about this, is I don't think we should be content just to be at the table and have all, verse, all voices being equal. Granted, equal voices, not saying that all we're all equal, I guess, trying to say that one voice has more truth than the other voices in it or backing it up. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it might seem it might seem egotistical, maybe. But as a Christian, don't you believe that not all truths God, are equal? That, yeah, like, don't we believe by definition, if we really believe anything, don't we believe that God's truth is truth, capital T? Yep. And whatever he says about anything is what is said about anything. Um, I, I know like this might sound weird, but I would ask people like, think about why do you think it's weird? Why do you think, why do you think it's not a good idea for Christianity to drive the direction of a culture, whether it's the laws or the economy or the sports or the families? If you are a Christian who thinks it's like a bad idea to have a distinctively, and this is going to be a loaded term, but to have a, ba- have a Christian nation, if you think that's a bad idea, why do you think that's a bad idea? Well, we can step like, back may- to like, Maybe you have a caricature. Sorry, maybe you have a caricature in your mind about what that would look like. You know, maybe it's like because again, I'm not talking about a a nation that flogs unbelievers for not believing and you know sends Muslim people to some kind of camp. Like, no, we're not talking about that Um, because again, that wouldn't. I don't believe that would be a proper interpretation of the old or the New Testament. Mm-hmm. For that matter, there was plenty of uh, sojourner laws in the Old Testament alone that would disprove those type of things. Um, but anyway, like, but if if just the one sentence, like, do you want, do you want these, like, do you want Christian principles to drive things? Or and if you hurt. think, if you think that's, a, or do you want to just be, if you think it's a bad, if you think it sounds like a bad idea. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying, why do you think you think, why do you, why do you think you think it's such a bad idea or a dangerous idea? Mm-hmm. Where do you think that belief comes from in your mind? Does it come from a concrete place? Does it come from kind of an ethereal, um, vague understanding of the history we learned in school? Um, you know, I just did think about it, like examine why you might feel that way. Because one thing that Doug is really clean to talk about is like this idea of Christianity driving culture is not about using carnal means to do it. This is huge. Like it's not about Christians getting bigger guns, more money, and coercive power of the state and taxing unbelievers into oblivion so that they all get saved. Right. No, it's not talking about that at all. It's like this advances through faith and through the gospel, through the gospel spreading to people, and those people are changed. We, we like evangelical Bible believing Christians believe that when you are saved, you follow Christ. You don't merely claim Christ, you follow Christ. 
And so if the gospel is moving in a people, they're going to be different. And if they're making up a country and a whole bunch of them are getting saved, then doesn't it make sense that that country would, would look different any more than like if a family, if a bunch of members of a family got saved, that family would operate differently, right? That's mm-hmm. what we're saying. We're not talking about coercion from the state. We're talking about the, we're talking about the gospel taking root and the gospel being preached and applied to people's lives in a way that helps them change. Um, that, you know, like this is, we're talking about a gospel that is more than just, it's not just a, you know, fire escape gospel. And it's also not just a build a better life gospel. Um, it is the real full gospel that changes everything about how you live for eternity and for tomorrow. What do you think? I I mean I don't I don't disagree. I think that Yeah, I think you summed it up well. I, I have nothing else to add on the subject. <laughs> right on. Well let's talk about um let's talk about the thing that sparked a lot of confusion um the first time we talked about this chapter. Do you want to lead us into this? Yeah, so it is in what location since, we are since you were the one since you were the one that like brought up the confusion and made me like <sighs> sit back and think about it, I'm going to make you uh, introduce You're gonna it. You're going to make me talk about it? Yeah. Um, so basically, I, I think he discusses the New Jerusalem coming down. I'm trying to find the location. It feels like it starts it. around 1544. That might be um, it. Yeah. Or 1554. Sorry. So said, um, yeah. the worship of the Christian church is the New Jerusalem. So he discusses in Revelation how you see the New Jerusalem coming down. Um and his stance, which I think is a valid one, because if I sat there and I'm just trying to find it, sorry, the Bible verse, um, Revelation 21, nine through 10, it's kind of spread throughout the chapter, but this section is what we were kind of talking about. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked to me. Come, I'll show you the bride, bride's lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem descending out of the heaven from God. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a discussion of the new Jerusalem and the new Israel, um, I think for so many of us, we thought just it being an actual physical city, whereas his argument. And if you look at the different symbols he discusses um, as and us as a church and even in this passage saying, look, it is a bride of the lamb. Um, the lamb's wife, and we are called the bride of Christ, the church, that the new Jerusalem coming down is not necessarily a city, but a symbol of the bride of Christ or the church being built up in Christ. Um, like living stones, as we've read in different books of Paul and Galatians, Hebrews, first uh, Peter, and so on. Yeah. First Peter two says you also as love, uh, li- lively stones, KJV are built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone elect precious and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Right. Um, we don't believe that Christ yeah. is an actual stone. Like, yes. Similarly, that's a symbol of him being our cornerstone and the same like living stones, um, being used as a symbol for us. Um, yeah. Yeah, this this virtue like this is something that has a lot of crossover with 
um, the all millennial position. This is one mm-hmm. of the things that made me get out of the um, dispensational sort of framework was a lecture about the reality of Christ being the new Israel and the church being the new Israel. Right. Um, not that it replaces Israel. It's not replacement theology. It is fulfillment theology mm-hmm. that all along God was doing this work and um, he brought it to fulfillment in the church, just like the new temple is Christ. You know, mm-hmm. we're not looking forward to a new physical temple. We have Christ. He is uh, the place of worship. Um, even as Christ himself said, right, that, uh, you know, you break, you destroy this temple and he'll raise it up in three days. Right. And then all the law and prophets were fulfilled in Christ. Exactly. So Doug points out how, I mean, this symbolism of the bride of Christ, the church being the new Jerusalem, the new Israel is all over the New Testament. Romans 9 um, talks about it a lot. Hebrews 12 talks about it. Galatians 4 and uh, Revelation 21, 9, like you talked about. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we struggled with for a second was if Doug was somehow like, um, I think you said like, is he saying that like that the eternal state has already arrived or something like that? Is is, is that right? What did, what were you struggling with in understanding I, his I, I position I don't remember here? exactly. I was trying to think back to what I had written down. I couldn't find my notes when I was writing it originally. Um, I couldn't, I was trying to sit there and think, does he think that there will be no new heavens and new earth? And I read it the first time. That's right. Okay, that's where I'm like, because it jumps straight, it literally jumps straight into that section from the other sections. And he does not address that really, that part. Mm-hmm of any way in the book at all. Yeah. Cause even in chapter 15, the epilogue, it really isn't discussed. Yeah. So I would, the, whenever you said that to me, I read through it a few times. Cause I was like trying to see that. Cause that would yeah. be um, wrong. That'd be heretical. Like you do it. We, we as Christians believe that Christ, no matter what kind of Christian you are, you must believe that Christ is coming back. And when he does that, he's going to, in some way, like he's going to redeem, resurrect, renew creation. Um, In some way, shape, or form. And so the fact that Doug uses this Revelation 21, because we think Revelation 21 talks about the new heavens and the new earth, right? Coming together. Coming together. And, um, you know, the first heavens and the first earth have passed away. I don't think he's saying... um, I don't think he's saying that because I've heard him speak in other places. Yes. It just, since it made the jump without reading a line about that or discussing it anywhere else, it just made me like pause and reflect. Yeah. So I, I think what he's actually saying here is like, he says he talks about this in like a welcoming invitation, like come and be part of this new humanity that's being built. Um, I think what he is saying is that that, is being built now mm-hmm. and it will be perfected on that day, but it is being built now and it is coming in a sense, in a way it's coming into the world and it is affecting the world now, Right, but it will be perfected on that day. Yep. Okay. Yeah, th- no, there's, yeah, I just, yeah. There's too many, there's too many super clear statements about that new Jerusalem being um, like the new heavens and new earth being eternal. There's just too yep. many clear statements to interpret that any other way. I think we should just so. close with this last, his last statement in the book. And when the angel showed John the great city, the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, 
He's being shown the bride of Christ. The Christian church is therefore the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb. The Christian church is the New Jerusalem. All Christians throughout the ages are all living stones in this great city and temple, 1 Peter 2.4. The Christian church is advancing through the world like a bride coming down the aisle in her glory. And that's location 1575. I added the part about through all the ages, but I figure <laughs> it fit in well there. Yeah, no, that's a great place to end. We've been at this for a little while, so um, good place to end. You got any any other thoughts that we need to, any loose ends we need to tie up before we get out of here? Uh, I don't think so. I think that uh, reading up um, just history from a perspective of what the Bible and what our founders and what other people who created governments throughout history, um, I guess just learning about why certain things happen is helpful not from a secular standpoint, just understanding where we're going, where we've come from, and how as Christians we can be a light um, in a dark world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I, uh, I hope I don't know. I hope we didn't make too many people too mad with this episode. This is one know. that uh, this is one that maybe more so even than the Mark of the Beast or all of that discourse I, could make people I don't mad. Know if the Mark of the Beast one was. I wonder how controversial that was, honestly. I don't have you, know. Have you ran the numbers? numbers? <laughs> the controversy numbers. Have we lost any viewers? Um, <laughs> Just a I don't steep, know. a steep have, drop off. We were accidentally. I did not see as many people freaking out about the past year about the Mark of the Beast as I thought. On all honesty, which on the one hand I was glad about, on the other hand I was like, I thought this, given all the movies we watched in the nineties, that, that would be bigger, like a big, big discussion point. But it wasn't as big as I thought. Yeah, I've seen some of it, but um, thankfully not. Uh, not a lot of it. I yeah, yeah. Thankfully, um, not to say that it's just foolishness to talk about it by not any means. Not at all. Because you better like I don't know. We don't need to get into whole better discussion to discuss about what it is than not discuss things. But I'm glad it wasn't like to your point. I'm glad it wasn't just talked about in a super sensational, Fearful, left behind ish way. Yep. Um. Yeah. So, yeah. If you're uh, mad, let us know. We'll be back with uh, probably one more episode for the book club, which is pretty exciting. We're almost done. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be back with, uh, probably after a short break, we'll be back with more epi- more traditional episodes of the podcast. Um, we got a lot going on. It's the holidays, so we take a break from recording. And uh, we'll be back, I don't know, with Andrew and perhaps some other people in tow, you know, sometime early on in the year. Um, but uh, we'll let you know when the new episodes are going to start back up. Plus, you'll see them in your uh, podcast feed. In the meantime, in the meantime, leave us a review and uh, I don't know, get this book, read it, highlight all the places you disagree with it, highlight all the places you agree with it, see how it impacts you. (laughs) That's all I'll say. There's a recommendation for tonight. All right. Jeremy's got nothing else to say. He's no, I'm sorry. I thought I was I was in well mode to you know hit hit the stop button. But <laughs> Jeremy's already checked out. I have out. nothing to add. Well, no, you you ended it so well. Oh. I'm just um oh, I'm, thanks, I'm the man. co-host. You're the host. Oh boy, it's a lot You're of pressure. You're the play-by-play. I'm the color commentary. <laughs> I'm the Tony Romo of this podcast. That's right. That's right. Well, he's the one with the bigger contract now. So, well, you, you know, go. I do get all that podcast money. Andrew's the accountant, but I'm not supposed to tell you. That. <laughs> yeah, Andrew's uh, he's the one who runs the book. So, all right, we'll get out of here and uh, see you guys next time. <laughs>